Human nature, personal identity. These two are very, very important topics, and I think we're going to find the text for these two topics from Genesis 1 to 3. So today I'm going to speak on the topic of Imago Dei, which is known as theological anthropology. We don't have any other anthropology as Christians, but theological anthropology that is based upon the biblical revelation of Imago Dei. And then I want to make a transition and share with you that we don't just finish with Imago Dei. We don't just end up restoring Imago Dei. There, there's an added factor as a result of Jesus Christ having been incarnated, having died on the cross for us, having become our Lord and Master. And that is that we can talk about Imago Christi as well. And this is what theologians would call Christological anthropology. I want for us to study today the theme of Imago Dei, which you may be familiar with if you have taken some theological uh, courses. Then you have definitely studied something about Imago Dei. That's the Latin term for image of God. And this is based upon the text we find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Let's read this text together. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Amen. The theologians, in order to define this concept of image of God or Imago Dei, they resort to either of these three views. And the most common view that throughout the church history people have embraced, and especially theologians have embraced, is that of what we call substantial or structural view. That is that we, bearing the image of God, we have something in common with God. Just like God, we are like soul. And what are those areas that we are like God? And theologians have uh, debated as to what are those elements. And I'm giving you a sort of a comprehensive list as to in what ways we can be like God or we are like God. First is that of the intellectual abilities. We're very much like God. No animals could possibly match the intellectual ability of human beings. And I think this is pretty much proven, even though the um, evolutionists would like to think that the animals will eventually catch up with us. The chimpanzees and, and uh, the primates will, will definitely catch up with us, give them plenty of time, and they will evolve into our intellectual level. But nonetheless, we are the most intellectual, and uh, we are able to uh, think, reason, we're able to analyze, we're able to process thoughts and deeply reflect 
and evaluate things. But not only the intellectual abilities, we also have the affectional ability. That is, we have the capacity of emotion that we can express so much more than any other animals. I don't know whether you've ever had a chance to observe animals or experiment with animals. Uh, maybe if you had a pet or you visited a zoo and you can test things out. The animals cannot express the range of emotion that we human beings can. And some of the basic emotions that we have is like anger and, and surprise or fear or sadness or joy. But we have dozens of other emotions that we can express and articulate. And we have that subtlety. We have that nuanced way of expressing things that animals have very difficult time catching up with us. And human beings, like God, we are spiritual. Even though God's spirituality is not equated with our spirituality, even though Jesus says that God is spirit, but we're not talking about just any kind of spirit. We're talking about uncreated spirit, the divine spirit. But He's created us kind of like Him. Even though we are creatures, we have that spiritual side to us. Each human being has a spirit or soul. So with that, we could intuitively relate to God. And that's how we relate to God. Our spirits primarily relate to God in this way. We are also volitional beings. Just like God who is volitional, He is free. We have free will too within the limit. But God has the ultimate free will. So in that sense, we have that likeness of God. That we are volitional. We are free willed within certain limits. And along with that, comes this element of morality and ethics. Human beings are known for the ability to choose right over wrong, to be able to discern what is just and what is righteous, what is a virtue, what is good, and we have conscience to dictate to us as to what that is like. We human beings, like God, are also aesthetic. We are creative, we are artistic. God created the universe out of His aesthetic nature and He's imparted that to us. So we are like God in that sense. And then, of course, we human beings are also linguistic-minded like God. I don't know whether you've ever had a chance to study the whole theory of uh, linguistics, but it is fascinating. We human beings are able to take those symbols and codes and we're able to make languages so that we can communicate with each other. And we have even come up with very simplified language. There is a computer language, the binary codes, one and zero. The combination of that in so many ways has created all kinds of ways of communicating with others. We human beings are also administrative-minded. We know how to manage things. Once the things are given unto our hands, we know how to manage it and take it into the next round. And in that sense, we are like God. He is administrating grace upon the whole creation and is providential in taking care of the world that He had created. And then finally, we human beings are like God in the sense that we are social, we are relational. We're not just thinking about self, we're thinking about others. We know how to relate to others. We know how to think communally. I know that animals have certain communal abilities, and all animals do, but we are not just communally relating to one another just to survive. 
we do this because this is the way we express our personhood. We acknowledge the dignity of each person by relating to one another in this way. And in that sense, we are like God. So in short, the substantial or structural view says that we are like God because we have these attributes like God. And that's how God made us. But then during the time of Reformation, people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, they preferred to view more from a relational perspective. And they would base from the text like Genesis 1.27, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Already here's this male and female combination that's relational. Complementary. It's kind of like the yin and yang that has to relate to one another. And this is what the personalist philosophers would say, I and thou relationship. And so this is a very important concept that uh, since the Reformation, uh, so many theologians have begun to embrace. And then, especially in the 20th century, people like uh, Karl Barth and Emil Brunner and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, based upon texts like verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness, the sense of plurality. They cannot help but to see something Trinitarian about this, something communal about the way God operates. Even in his creation, he says, let us. And of course, there's many, many variations as to the interpretation as, as to what us means. It may not be talking about God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It may be just talking about the whole court of God, the whole entourage of God, or even the angelic host. But these theologians that I mentioned, and the later Trinitarian theologians would say, there's something about this let usness, that there's something that says that we have to learn to relate to one another. And that's perhaps the most important thing, most important element that has to do with Imago Dei. And John Calvin would go and say that relational view has to do with we being like the mirror reflection of God. So to speak. We, we're not God. We don't necessarily have to have His elements in us, but we do reflect Him in a personal way, in a relational way. And then the third view is that of functional or representational view. And this is based upon Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And based upon this text, these uh, theologians, mostly Old Testament scholars, we can even say that there is a consensus among the Old Testament scholars saying that this is perhaps the best way to define Imago Dei. We define it in a functional and representative way that human beings are to represent God so that they can have dominion over the earth. God is the ultimate ruler, but He has delegated human beings to represent Him to rule over the earth. And in chapter 2, verse 15, God says to Adam and Eve, 
that they are to actually work in the garden and take care of the garden uh, to signify stewardship that they are to engage in. And so what kind of view is this? This is a view that was common among many nations in the ancient Near East in those days. It was not just the Israelites, but most of the nations surrounding the nation of Israel, they had this mentality that somehow God, in order to rule over the people that he had created, he would establish human kings or pharaohs as his representatives. So initially, they used to have the statue of the statue of God. But now, instead of the statue of God, human beings become living animated statues of God. But these have to be kings and pharaohs of high order. And so they would divinize these uh, individuals and they would act as representatives of God. So what the Bible view or the Genesis view is showing us is a sort of democratization of the concept of Imago Dei, not only for the few, but all human beings, even the lowly, even in the lowest caste, these people are also just like kings and pharaohs created according to the image of God because they are to represent God here on earth. And this view I prefer personally, even though I believe that there's there's some ground for the substantial or structural view and also the relational view, but ultimately it's the functional and representational view that really makes sense to me. And why? Because you might have noticed in this substantial and structural view, I mentioned all these attributes, all these abilities and capabilities, but there's something missing here. Something very important that's missing here, and if you miss that, then, then you're not defining human in a comprehensive way, and that is the bodily, bodily function. And no one dares to attribute our bodies to Imago Dei, or to the likeness of God, because God doesn't have a body. So we have a dilemma. We can talk about all these inner attributes, but leave the body out of the picture, but if we look at things from a functional or representational view, then the body really makes sense because without the body, we cannot represent God. You see, even in the ancient Near Eastern tradition, God was to be represented by a figurehead, a king or a pharaoh. Somebody has to represent God, a human divine figure. And now the biblical writers are saying that that figure is none other than all human beings. We have been created bodily so that we can represent God's own image. Now, if you're not sure about this, and if you want to do a little bit of research, go to Irenaeus, John Calvin, Herman Bobbing, and Gerard von Rod, and other Old Testament scholars. They pretty much say that the body is very much part of the image of God. Not in a literal sense, but the body in a representational sense is very much part of the image of God. Gerard von Rod, a very, very famous Old Testament scholar says, one does well to separate as little as possible the bodily and spiritual. The whole man is created 
in the image of God. Another Old Testament scholar, David Klein, says, Insofar as man is a body and a bodiless man is not man, the body is the image of God. Man is the flesh and blood image of the invisible God. So my conclusion is, based upon actually all three views, but climaxing with the third view, that is the functional and representational view of Imago Dei, that we human beings are the embodied agents of God. Bodily and motion-wise, our activities, our works, our efforts, these are representing God himself. Can I hear an amen to that? That's an amazing, amazing revelation that's given to us from the Old Testament, from the very first book of the Old Testament. So we cannot say the Old Testament is archaic and, and Genesis is archaic. Genesis is such an upgraded book if we understand what Moses and the other writers who basically finalized the book of Genesis and the whole Pentateuch, the five books that uh, Moses initiated the authorship of, I believe that it is a very much upgraded theology. But I want to move on now to talk about the concept of Imago Christi. And you're very familiar with this term. But most people are not very familiar with this term. Most pastors, most theologians, probably are not very familiar with this term because this is a rare term. And you're not going to find much on this concept of Imago Christi. People talk about Imago Dei all the time, but Imago Christi is quite rare. And that's why I chose this as the name of our ministry and our church. And for the title of my book, which is pretty much finalized now, this is going to be my title. I don't, I don't care whether the publishers like it or not. You know, Imago Christi, I will not compromise this. And I would rather explain this, even though people may say, oh, what is this? Imago Christi, what does this mean? Why do I use the term Imago Christi? Because when we have entered into the New Testament, we're not satisfied simply with a restored view of the Old Testament concept of Imago Dei. There's got to be Christ element in the New Testament. And this is exactly the term that gives us that element. Imago Christi. But this is not just my own finding. It's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. First of all, did you know that in the New Testament, before we talk about us as being Imago Dei, the New Testament says Jesus Christ is the Imago Dei. I thought we were the Imago Dei. But the New Testament says Jesus is the Imago Dei. Let's look at some text. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the first portion of that, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. Exact representation. This is the concept of Imago Dei. But more literally, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
Verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Jesus is the prototype image of God. The difference between him being the image, we being the image, we are sort of like the copy of them. But he's the original. He is the very image of God who cannot have image. Because God is invisible. People may ask, well, why can we see God? Why can we see God the Father? And it was Philip who asked that question as well. Why can we see God the Father? Just show us for once. And Jesus answered him, you can't see the Father. You see me, then you see the Father. Because Father is invisible. He makes himself visible through his Son, Jesus Christ, through his incarnation. And that's why Jesus is the image of God. Because God cannot be imaged any other way. But Jesus is the exceptional way that he imaged God for us. And we, as a result of Jesus, we are able to bear that image ourselves. But there's an added factor in our conversion, in our sanctification, in our glorification. That is, we are transformed into literally Imago Christi, image of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That we are to be conformed to the image of His Son, image of Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, you hearing this message, you're sensing some kind of passion from this pastor regarding Imago Christi, but you might not quite get it. What, what's the big deal? You know? Let's just be satisfied with the Imago Dei concept and, uh, and then you know, salvation has to do with just being restored of that image. Are we satisfied with that? But did you know that the concept of Imago Dei is not only popular among Christians, but people of other religions use this concept as well. The Jews and the Muslims and others have this kind of theology. And even New Agers, they love this concept that they are bearing the image of God because they want to interpret that as being that they themselves have that divine nature. See, So they are all satisfied with the concept of Imago Dei. So for us to just proclaim Imago Dei is not sufficient. We have to go beyond that. We've got to bring Christ into this. And how are you going to be able to distinguish what they're saying about image of God and what we mean by the image of God? Because for us, it is not just the image of God. It is through Christ. Now we are really learning what it means to be that image in the likeness of Christ. And that's why we use the term Imago Christi. And I hope that you can meditate on this term uh, because we bear the name as a, as a fellowship. 
And uh, for me personally, I've actually engraved that in my heart so that I will forever meditate on that Christ factor. Because I'm not satisfied just being an image. I want to be that image of Christ, in the likeness of Christ. That's my goal, that's my pursuit, and I hope that is for all of you. And I'm sure it is. Amen? Amen. So today, I, I've talked about this concept of Imago Dei and Imago Christi as a way of explaining, very simply, a theological anthropology. And uh, next week, I'm going to speak on our personal identity. What does it mean to really have this sense of identity as a Christian? And more specifically, what does it mean to have personal identity in Christ? And so I hope that you can benefit from that message as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together. What is given to us in the world, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, are pretty much well-defined, and the theologians have really delved deeply into these concepts. And for us, I just pray that it would not just be a word game or just a theological jargon, but it is something serious that we would meditate on, that we not only build the image of God, not only functioning as representative of God, but more literally to bear the image of Christ and to be agents of Jesus Christ himself. As Jesus himself did according to the Father's will, that we would imitate the way of Jesus and do things likewise. Father, I pray that you would give us this mind of reflection, this heart and passion to bring Jesus into our picture of things. That without Jesus, we're no different from any other religions or even the New Agers who love to pick up on the Christian concepts and, and leave Jesus Christ out of the picture altogether. But Father, we want to bring Jesus into the picture in everything that we do. That, and literally that we may be the image of Christ to the world. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please receive the benediction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and radiate in all His glory, beauty, wisdom, and love. And may you go forth now and shine forth the image of God, but more, shine forth the image of Christ because you are the image of Christ in this world. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.